did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Hagar and Ishmael sent away. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. The Treaty at Beersheba. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. 
Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Well, our, our reading this morning comes as a great relief, I think, because since back in April, we've been waiting for what happens here. We've been waiting for the events that we read about here. In chapter 12, the Lord called Abraham to leave everything that he knew and to go and um, follow him in faith. And if Abraham would go, God promised him that he would make him a people, that he would give him a land, and that he would bless him to the extent that the whole world would be blessed through him. Uh, descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, the Lord went on to clarify. Descendants more numerous than the sand of the beaches, the dust of the earth, right? But for 10 chapters from our perspective, for 25 years from Abraham and Sarah's perspective, not the first step in fulfilling that promise had come. Not even the first step. How are you going to have descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky if you haven't even had one? And so it's with great joy that we read about the birth of Isaac. And this morning I just want to show you three things from this. The first is that God's covenant promises give us great joy. They give us joy, and that's what we see in verses 1 to 7. Up to this point, Abraham and Sarah's story has been full of twists and turns. At times, they've shown incredible faith and godliness, but at other times, they have been full of doubts. They've been full of cynicism, full of wickedness even. And I guess that if someone was going to write an account of your life or your faith over the last 25 years, if you've been a Christian that long, there would probably be moments like that. Twists and turns, wickedness and godliness mixed together. Because frankly, we are short-sighted people. You know, we are prone to have ups and downs because we are, are prone to distraction. We're easily overwhelmed by our circumstances. We're the kind of people that at the turn of the new year, we resolve with our whole hearts that we're going to accomplish these things and do these 
establish these patterns, and then by June 11th, do you remember what you resolved with your whole heart? And if you do, how have you done? I have a hard time remembering what I was so keen on then. And the things I do remember, I haven't done that well. And that's the kind of people that we are. But the clear emphasis of verses 1 and 2 is that God is not like that. The Lord is not like us in that regard. As so often in the Bible, the repetition helps us to see the point. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah at what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time that God had promised him. The Lord was gracious, as he said. He did what he promised at the very time he promised to do it. The point, very, very clear, God keeps his promise. He keeps his promises. During the, the Cold War, Ronald Reagan had this memorable phrase that he used frequently in his dealings with the Soviet Union. It was, trust but verify. You'll remember, maybe. Originally, a Russian proverb, but my understanding is that, uh, like, unlike so many proverbs, it translates into every language. There's probably an equivalent in, in Cantonese. Trust, but verify. It translates well because the sentiment is universal. We want to trust people. We want to believe when people tell us things, but we know better. but not so with God. When he says that he will do something, it is as good as done. That's why when you read the prophets in the scriptures, uh, they're making prophecies about something that will happen in the future. You know, Babylon will come and carry us off into exile, but we will return. Uh, they don't actually often use the future tense for that. They often use the past tense for that. Now, Babylon came. We returned. Because God says it's going to happen, it's as good as if it already had happened. You couldn't be any more certain that it will happen uh, if it already, if God has said it, then you wouldn't be any more certain than if it already had. You understand what I'm trying to say. His word actually brings reality into being. You know, humans try that. We, we try to say things and, and make them true, but that's not within our capability. But it is with God. When he says something, it brings reality into being. Now, that is a simple point, but it is a profound point. Consider all the gracious promises that the Lord made in the Old Testament and the New. One of the, the great repeated promises throughout the Old Testament is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And though over the centuries Israel uh, basically does anything it can and everything it can to serve other gods, to reject their inheritance as God's people, God keeps bringing them back and reaffirming the promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. 
And then, of course, we have so many promises that God has made to us in the New Testament. That everyone who is burdened and heavy laden can find rest in Christ. That eternal life is given to whosoever believeth. That all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. We can be as sure of those things as if they had already happened in the past. Are you that sure? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They're yes in Christ. So God has made gracious promises. Therefore, we should trust him completely while we wait for the day of their fulfillment. Not wondering if they'll happen, but waiting for them to happen. And the more impossible the promise seems, the more joy there will be when God keeps his promise. That's what we see in verses 3 to 7. You scan down through those verses and and notice the emphasis on the sheer improbability of what we find. The fact that Abraham and Sarah would have a child. Verse 3, the son Sarah bore him. Verse 4, his son. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. And it culminates with this uh, poetic song from Sarah. You can feel her joy as she says, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, uh, to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in my old age, in his old age. Isaac's name, of course, means laughter. He laughs. And it is precisely because his birth is so impossible that it brings rejoicing. Sarah was 90. Abraham was 100. That doesn't happen. But it did happen. The cynical laughter of the previous chapters is completely gone. And now it's replaced with the joyful, wonder-filled laughter of Sarah as she holds her child. And I think at least part of that joy comes from understanding this, that if God starts a people with with an impossible, miraculous act, then they can be even more sure that he will sustain them through impossible circumstances. If God starts a people with an impossible act, then you can be sure that he'll sustain them through impossible circumstances. Every parent worries, to some extent, about their child hoping that they'll be kept from serious illness and injury or or death or just the vicissitudes of life and the sadnesses of it. Every parent. That's why new parents 
as you hold a, a, a new infant, so I'm told, or so I've felt as I've held somebody else's new child, I think, am I doing this right? I have anxiety, fear, am I holding it right? Is the head okay? Is this neck, etc. right? Because you don't want to do anything that's going to screw things up for this child. But imagine the freedom and the joy that Sarah and Abraham felt. A miracle brought this child along. There's nothing that's going to stop God from fulfilling what he's promised. Which is why it's important for us to understand that we have been born, born again, by a supernatural act of God. Only a supernatural act of God could give us new spiritual life. You know, if becoming a Christian and entering into eternal life was a matter of saving ourselves, well, we could worry, and we should worry, because if we can save ourselves, we can lose ourselves. If faith was about being smart enough to figure God out, you know, I was just really clever in, in uh, sixth form, and I, I became a Christian. Well, then we'd have to live in fear of being misled someone more clever than us, leading us astray. But because salvation is a supernatural work of God, his sovereign choice of his people, his election, we can be sure that he will supernaturally preserve us to the end of our lives. He will preserve you in faith. If he's granted you true faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we can be sure that he will sustain our faith through the twists and turns of life. Nothing will stop him. Whatever our circumstances what might be, whether that's suffering or, or temptations or disappointments or dementia, nothing's going to stop him. God will complete the work he began in us. By the same supernatural grace that initially brought us to faith, we will persevere. As Paul says in Romans 8.38, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The certainty of God's love shown to us in Christ Jesus should give us great joy. The sheer improbability that God would choose sinful people like me, like you. That should give us joy. It should be a source of laughter. Martin Luther said, the gospel is nothing less than laughter and joy. It's more than that, but it's nothing less than that. He also said, you have as much laughter as you have faith. Is your life characterized by laughter, by joy? Perhaps meditate more on the improbability that you will enjoy eternity before God. We, we next see that although God's promise gives joy and security 
to the elect, there is still sorrow. There's still sorrow because God's covenant promises separate us from the, the things of this world. We see that abrupt tonal shift of this passage start in verse 8. We don't know exactly how long after Isaac's birth it was before Isaac was weaned. But based on the ancient Near Eastern custom, we could estimate that the feast was maybe about three years in. Three years after his birth, the feast held to celebrate the survival of a child through the dangers of infancy, really. That would be the custom. I guess in Chinese culture, is it 100 days that you celebrate? Yeah, for the same reasons, I think. Uh, Infancy is quite dangerous. The survival of an infant is something to celebrate. And it's in that context that a family feud started up, in the context of this big feast, as so often family feuds do start up, don't they? The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Verse 9, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of the slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Ishmael was 14 years old when Isaac was born, now probably about 17 years old uh, by this point, old enough to know that before Isaac came along, before the toddler got here, he was the one. He was going to inherit. But now that Isaac had made it through infancy and survived, he could see that the writing was on the wall. He was second best at best, and he didn't like it. Verse 9 reports that Ishmael was mocking Isaac. And you might think that's just an innocent joking or, or uh, play fighting or something, but no, that, that word, when it is used throughout Scripture, that form of it, it means um, malicious ridiculing, or that seems to be the sense. The same word is used to describe the laughing that Lot's sons did when Lot warned them about the coming judgment scoffing kind of laughter. The same word that Potiphar's wife uses when she accuses Joseph of, um, of trying to rape her, that he was maliciously ridiculing the royal household was her accusation. Paul picks this up and gives us a clearer understanding of what's going on in Galatians 4. He says, in, ver- in Galatians 4:28, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. So Ishmael was persecuting Isaac because he knew that Isaac was God's chosen heir. He was at enmity with the chosen seed just as God had promised would happen in the Garden of Eden, right? There'll be enmity between your offspring and her offspring, he said to the snake. And remember that God had promised Abraham that the chosen offspring, that he would bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. And so now Ishmael has put himself on the wrong side of that promise. 
So whether Sarah was responding as a protective mother might respond, or whether she had this resentment and spite stored up for Hagar and Ishmael over those years, it doesn't really matter what Sarah's motive was because under God's own plan, Ishmael had put himself on the wrong side. And that's why God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah. As Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4, but what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Now that greatly distressed Abraham, as you would imagine. According to verse 11, he was distressed because this was his son. He loved his son. He uh, pleaded with God, remember Ishmael. But God gives him reassurance. Even though he's going to be separated, God will be gracious to him and make him into a nation. So it's a bit of a messy story, but what are we to make of it? Well, I think the, the key is to see that now Abraham will be forced to stop hedging his bets. Okay, while he has Ishmael and Isaac, well, okay, I believe you, God, about Isaac. Got Ishmael, too. And if things go wrong, Ishmael's there. And Ishmael was the product of a, a sinful plan hatched because they didn't trust God's promise, right? Um, Ishmael was the, the son of a, an ill-conceived plan. He was the safety net. But you know, God's plan doesn't require a safety net. In fact, to have a backup plan just in case is itself a doubt in the trustworthiness of God. And God says, no, you can't have a plan B. I'll be gracious to Hagar and Ishmael, but I will not allow you to hedge your bets any longer. You will hope in my promise alone or you won't have any hope. That's how it will be, Abraham. So here's the point. Because God loves us, he forces us to turn our hearts away from anything and everything that compromises our trust in his grace alone. Perhaps there's something like that in your life at the moment. Something that you're hoping in, you're dreaming about, you're praying for, that you're holding on to for security and for joy, even though it's contrary to what the Lord has said. Perhaps it's greatly distressing to you to think that he might take that thing from you or not allow you to have it in the first place. But if it's preventing you from devoting yourself entirely to the Lord, the Lord is telling you to send it away. I've often seen it in romantic relationships. Christians who know that the Lord would not be pleased for them to be in 
a relationship with this person, to marry this person, but the heartbreak of breaking up and the thought of being alone, well, it keeps them holding on. But God says, stop hedging your bets. Stop hedging your bets on your future joy. Start trusting the Lord by doing as he commands. Or perhaps you know that there's something that God is calling you to change about your life, your work life, your social life. Perhaps there's fear at the thought of change, you know, lost opportunities, lost friends, lost income. But you know that God is not pleased with the way things are currently. Trust him. Follow him. Allow him to lead you into the unknown. A, a life lived in faith to God, in, uh, faith in God alone, it will not necessarily be easier, probably won't be more comfortable. But you know, you will never regret a sacrifice you make to be obedient to the Lord Jesus in the end. That will never be something that you regret in the end. And I think that's what Abraham needs to learn and what he will learn even more next week. Lastly, God's covenant promises are permanent while everything else is temporary. There's this rather strange, maybe mundane story of Abraham and Abimelech cutting this treaty together, this covenant. It's the same Abimelech who Sarah had been drafted into his harem last week and uh, he had been tricked and, and he sent Abraham off. Uh, and he sees what God is doing in Abraham's life. He sees the the blessings that Abraham is receiving. And he says, I don't want myself, I don't want my descendants to be on the wrong side of that blessing. You know, he got something that Ishmael apparently didn't get. And so he says, let's make a treaty. And Abraham agrees, but with this request about this well. And I think the most important verse in this is verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Abraham was a sojourner in the land for a long time. That means he was a foreigner. You might say he was an expat in the land. And therefore, the covenant with Abimelech, the, the hotly contested well, it was all temporary, really. It was temporary, but what's interesting, I think, is that he recognizes that these temporary provisions are given to him by the Lord, the eternal God, El Olam. Abraham recognizes that the covenant with Abimelech and the well are tokens of the forever God's love. The everlasting God takes care of the everyday needs of his people. The God of eternity takes care of the details of time. And so, when we 
are, se are separated from worldly things, we can think, will I be able to survive? Will I be able to, to have joy? Will I be able to flourish? And I think this is um, evidence that, yeah, <laughs> even if it's just the temporary things that you require, God will provide those. But really, the only permanent thing in this life and the next is our relationship, our covenant relationship with him. And so there's nothing worth losing that over, worth turning away from that over, worth disobeying him over. So let's pray. Let's pray this uh, bird gets out of here as well. Father, thank you for... Um, Thank you for doing the difficult things necessary for Abraham to learn to trust you and to live for you alone. Thank you for doing the difficult things necessary to teach us the same. Please help us to trust you, to turn away from anything that might um, be a way of hedging our bets on what you've called us to. Please help us to find joy again as at the first, when we were, were first converted, when we first realized your love for us, please renew that joy in us and help us to live out of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.